So here we are, at the end of uh, six weeks together. And there's been so much uh, talk and activity of transition that I feel it would be nice to just pause for a moment. Just pause in this being together in this configuration for one last evening. Just be here. So we're coming together in this shared activity of presence and of deep listening. And I think there have been a few spoilers around this, but what I want to talk about tonight (laughs) is equanimity. And I gather that there's some interest and appetite around this subject. And so I want to share some reflections, but also hope that I can help us find a taste of this quality this evening. So maybe just to begin with an aspiration or a a reflection, uh, equanimity reflection, the aspiration, may may I be at ease with this changing experience. So the the winds of change are blowing and it might feel sometimes like a refreshing breeze and sometimes a bit like a gale or a hurricane. Um, But we don't have to either be blown over or to armor ourselves against them. And maybe some of this interest comes from feeling like uh, our equanimity has deserted us and you know, we're kind of not quite sure how to re-establish it or get it back again. But I hope that um, as I talk, you'll realize that you already, we all already know a lot more about it than we think, perhaps. So I just want to offer another contemplation. This, this one comes from um, Sharon Salzberg. She says, sit like a mountain. Sit with a sense of strength and dignity. Be steadfast. Be majestic. Be natural and at ease in awareness. No matter how many winds are blowing us, no matter how many lions are prowling. Be intimate with everything and sit like a mountain. So these winds of change are blowing, the leaves are changing and falling, the weather has been changing The season is marching on. The moon is going to be full again in a couple of days' time. 
These bodies have been changing, minds have been changing, and now our companions and this practice community and the teachers are going to be changing. Tomorrow is a parting of the ways for the people leaving and the people staying behind. And so this is a, a big teaching for us in the the fourth of the five reflections I talked about last week. That all that is mine, beloved and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And the Buddha said that everyone without exception would do well to reflect on this fact frequently. And he said, why? Because an ordinary person will feel desire and passion for the things they find dear and appealing. But when a practitioner often reflects in this way, that desire and passion for the things they find dear and appealing will either be entirely abandoned or grow weaker. So notice that he doesn't say you won't find anything dear and appealing. So uh, there's a story I like around uh, the, the Buddha just shortly after the death of his two closest disciples who both died within quick succession of each other, the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Moggallana. And the Buddha was in conversation probably with Ananda, I can't remember the story, and he said, it's as if the sun and the moon have gone out of the world. And yet the Tathagata does not grieve. So he was acknowledging that Moggallana and Sariputta were dear to him. And yet this didn't um, disturb his peace of mind. We can't, we can't live a human life without finding things dear and appealing. Yeah. But our spiritual maturity is in our ability to let those things go. So this contemplation, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. And this also teaches us something about what is mine, so what have we started to feel over the last few weeks is ours? What have we begun to appropriate, to kind of get habituated to? There's so many lessons in this contemplation. And really to, to see that and to, to reflect, to see again and again that everything, absolutely everything that's subject to arising is subject to cessation and none of it is ours in any permanent kind of way. So equanimity, orienting to this, can this help us out at this time? But about, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks ago, there was a flurry of questions around equanimity and uh, Greg gave a beautiful short reflection on it in the, the morning session. And it's also been referred to in, in talks because it comes at the end of lots of the lists that we've been speaking about. So you might remember that uh, equanimity is the seventh of the seven factors of awakening. 
that's the fourth of the four Brahma Viharas. It's the tenth of the tenth Paramis, and it's the kind of defining characteristic of the fourth of the four material jhanas. So it's kind of a, at the top of most of these lists, and it's very close to Nibbana itself. And so you might think, well, if it's that important, why have we left it till the last night of the retreat to talk about it? (laughs) And uh, one answer to that is that there are just so many good things to talk about. (laughs) But the other thing is I think that actually it's been with us all the time. And uh, so although we haven't explicitly given a talk on it, I think this quality of equanimity, it's like a kind of golden thread that's been running through our practice all the way. So I want to talk about that. But first of all, just to kind of recap on what equanimity is, uh, which Greg um, beautifully uh, expressed the other day. So I think there are, there are two kind of um, broadly two senses, of two flavors of equanimity. And the first is uh, contained in the, the usual word for equanimity, upeka, which is written, although misspelled, on the be- bench outside the front door. <laughs> so it's one of my personal equanimity practices is to <laughs> let go of my attachment to the correct spelling of, of upeka. Uh, <laughs> so Upeka, which has one P and two K's, <laughs> it's also misspelled on a very fancy um, certificate that I, I received at the end of my teacher training. <laughs> so it's a double challenge here. <laughs> So upeka means to to look upon. The up is upon and the eka is, is looking. Uh, and so looking with a sense of spaciousness and perspective, as if you were looking from the top of, top of a high mountain, taking a, a long and a wide view. And I found a, a, a quote from Joseph, a definition of equanimity. It says he's... It's the mind space of impartiality. That is a non-reactive easefulness of mind that's open to seeing the whole of different situations and experiences. And in that same uh, talk of his that I I listened to, he, he quoted something from the poet Rilke, who I've quoted before, which talks about really the, the mystery and the unknowability of another person he's talking about relationships and yet it can refer to equanimity generally and just from these experiences those of you who are leaving that you've had of connecting with one another over the last day or two just and and also I guess even if you're not leaving this this strange business of feeling very very connected to all these people that we don't know possibly don't know anything about don't even know what language is their mother tongue, um, and yet we can be very connected. So Rilke said that once the realization is accepted that even between the closest people, 
infinite distances exist. A marvellous living side by side can grow up for them. If they succeed in loving the expanse between them, which gives them the possibility of always seeing each other as a whole and before an immense sky. So equanimity is, gives us the possibility of seeing things as a whole and before an immense sky. That sense of the space that holds everything, reflected in the, the Brahma Viharas as being boundless and immeasurable. And that space doesn't uh, imply a kind of lack of clarity or a non-discernment. There's um, clarity within equanimity. So that's one sense of equanimity. And then the other sense is this sense of um, standing firm at the center of things. And the Pali word, tatra majatata, standing here in the middle of things. So finding... T.S. Eliot's still point at the center of the turning world. And this is reflected maybe more in the English word equanimity, which means even-mindedness. Shantideva uh, called it walking evenly on uneven ground. Greg had this lovely image of the, the ship with a a deep keel and ballast that uh, moves in the water but stays upright because of the weight uh, in the keel and the sen- in the sense our practice is what gives us uh, the ballast for equanimity to arise. I also really like the images of trees, of old um, tall trees which bend in the storms so as not to break but their roots um, keep them, keep them uh, stable. And interestingly, I just heard that uh, young trees need wind in order to spread their roots. They, they spread healthy roots when they're actually exposed to some degree of, um, of wind. And in the same way for us, our equanimity is actually strengthened and deepened when we meet things that are challenging. So both these images of the boat and the tree, they emphasize resilience, the capacity to return again and again to a place of balance. We're not stuck somewhere, but we come back uh, to our center. So the place of equanimity at the end or the top of all these lists also reflects that... um, Complete equanimity is a fruit of our practice as opposed to something that we can just choose to have, which is very similar to wisdom. um, And yet, uh, just as with wisdom, it's something that we can practice to grow and and to cultivate the conditions that allow it to ripen. And this is why... um, Upeka equanimity is one of the paramis, the perfections, these qualities that are perfected gradually on the path to awakening. So I'm going to end up quoting quite a bit from Ajahn Suchito this evening, who uh, uh, was the abbot of Chithurst Monastery in England, where I spent some time as a nun, and also uh, another disciple of Ajahn Chah, 
Um, and he's probably he's taught some of you. He teaches here at IMS, but he's written a, a very lovely book on the Paramis. Um, I think called Crossing the Floods. It may even be one of the ones in the bookstore. But he says that the Paramis or the perfections they they develop in three stages, which he calls gathering, um, initiating, gathering, and completing. And so initiating is where one one kind of brings the quality to mind as a kind of orienting principle. So something we can turn our intention towards and that we build it into into our uh, into our world as a reference point in our system of values. So this is also already, you know, we're reflecting on, where, okay, well, what is equanimity? Can I orient myself towards this quality? And then gathering is where you're kind of working to apply this quality in the face of opposition, as if you're developing a mental muscle. So this is very much like metta, what we've been doing with metta practice, which is metta is also one of the ten paramis. And like metta, equanimity is, in this way, is, a, is more of an intention than a feeling. And just like with metta, sometimes committing to it involves going against the grain of our inclinations or our habitual tendencies against the grain of the defilements. And then the third stage of completion is when you kind of you know that that quality in you is so trustworthy that it can carry you through any kind of obstacle. So how is equanimity cultivated in our practice? Where could we find this golden thread that I... Um, I, I feel is there. So I'm going to recall a few, a few themes from our teaching and our practice over the last few weeks. And in some ways, for me, this feels like a bit of a celebration of what you've all been doing. Um, and also hopefully a reminder of some things that can be a resource for continuing practice, whether you're continuing here or whether you're uh, moving on. And as I mentioned these different different themes, you could also reflect on whether and how your equanimity has actually grown over this time through any of these practices. So even just beginning with right back at the beginning of the first sit of the first day, or the first, just this whole activity of taking up a meditation posture. So just now we, I, I read that contemplation from Sharon Salzberg of sitting like a mountain. What does it do when you put your body into a meditation posture and feel that, that stillness and the groundedness, the connection with the earth, with gravity, and sit with a sense of dignity and uprightness? So there's a there's a line in the Metta Sutta that we've been chanting in the evening, which says Ujucha Suhujucha, which means um, upright and well upright. Uh, so I think as we said, may I um, let them be able and upright. It's the upright part of that, but it's Ujucha Suhujucha, and that's a kind of it's not just a physical uprightness, but it's an ethical uprightness too. 
Joan Halifax Roshi calls equanimity the strong back that supports the, sto- the soft front of compassion. So just that activity of taking our seat in the middle of things, just that physical gesture, so helpful. So I don't know what was discussed today in the, um, for those of you who are leaving and went to BCBS about um, taking practice home, but one of the tips that may have been shared that I've heard from Joseph is just this advice to at least make a commitment once a day to put your body into a meditation posture. This is something he determined at one time in his life. And you may sit for 30 seconds or you may find you sit for an hour or two. You don't know. But just that gesture of uh, giving yourself the physical reminder of what it is to become still at the center of things. I was, it was very nice this morning in the meditation to open my eyes and I saw that there were quite a lot of people standing this morning, uh, perhaps following Greg's example. And I find standing also, especially when I bring to mind this image of the tree and the roots going into the ground, is also a, a very good way of steadying myself. The whole mystery of how we need movement to balance in the stillness. Uh, It's very skillful to come to associate standing, which we so often have to do, like waiting in line and so forth, with meditation. So just these gestures of the body can help to move us into a place of more equanimity. And then we have the practice of mindfulness itself. And really, if there's any mindfulness present in the mind, there's there's a degree, at least a trace of equanimity present. So we talked about the Satipatthana Sutta, the four ways of establishing mindfulness, practice of knowing the body in the body as body, feelings, feeling tones in feeling tones, the mind as the mind, and mental phenomena as mental phenomena. And then this aspect of the practice that runs through all those foundations of abiding independent and not clinging to anything in the world. This unbiased, non-judgmental quality of mindfulness. It's already a movement into profound equanimity. I think I shared at some point early in this retreat that definition of Christina Feldman's that I like of mindfulness which she says it's the willingness and capacity to be equally near all things with kindness curiosity and discernment so Ajahn Suchito um, talks about uh, the activity of mindfulness in developing the muscle of equanimity and this is what he says He says, pay attention, meet what arises and include it all. That is, feel the thoughts, feelings and emotions as they are. Widen the focus to feel how they're affecting the body and let empathic attention rest over the whole of it. Don't get busy and don't don't just wait for things to end. That isn't a full inclusion. Instead, soften those attitudes and include it all. And let the process continue for whatever arises next. 
So to practice this inclusive kind of awareness, it really helps us to make space in the mind. And this is Bante's wonderful acronym, slowing down and simplifying, patience, attitude, continuity, and being expectation-free, not an expectation freak. <laughs> so if you're leaving, you know, remembering to slow down and pause often will help you center yourself and rebalance. And if you're staying, your slowness and your steadiness will be a gift to yourself, but also a gift to the yogis and the teachers who are coming in. And we can all practice being expectation-free. As Andrea's beautiful talk last night reminded us, we never know what's going to happen next. And we think we need to know, but actually we don't need to know. I love the, the picture on the stairs that we pass whenever we go up to the practice meetings. Try not to expect anything. And that way everything will open up to you. So another thing that we've been constantly reflecting on, reminding you about is guarding the sense doors, so being discerning about the contact that we seek and engage with. So what has our retreat shown us about the value of this? So from my own recollection of being a yogi on this retreat and this time of transition it can be really helpful in the next few days to kind of spend possibly a little bit more time in your room certainly tomorrow when there's a lot of flurry of activity or at least to avoid you know busy areas and for people who are leaving just being really kind of moderate about uh, and selective about how we re-engage with the world of the senses. And I'd really recommend noticing the peace and contentment that doesn't need feeding from sensory distraction. And that what peace and contentment is already established. I think in my first or second talk, I was talking about craving and how much I was looking forward to finishing the TV drama that I was hooked on when I went home. And I notice that now there's a kind of loss of interest in that. <laughs> the mind is feeling much more satisfied and content and watching some very, um, you know, some action-packed TV drama doesn't have that same kind of appeal. So really to notice the contentment that's there and we don't have to throw ourselves into our old habits. <clears throat> and then in this activity of watching what's arising at the sense doors, we can be mindful of the feeling tones, the Vedana, the pleasant and unpleasant contacts that are arising there and practice non-reactivity as best we can. So there's a, uh, another um, expression of equanimity, which I think comes from the uh, African-American civil rights activist, Howard Thurman, who talks about seeing the world with quiet eyes. I find that very beautiful, to look out or to see the world with quiet eyes. Maybe how about hearing the world with quiet ears? 
touching the world with a soft touch. We also reflected on the four elements, contemplation of mindfulness of the body, and how we can um, reflect on the body in terms of the earth element or the water element, the fire element, or the air or wind element, and how these elements are the same inside the body and outside the body. Uh, Wherever we are, there's this body, earth element, and there's the earth element outside us. The same with all the others. I find that brings a sense, a certain sense of balance and stillness into the mind. And the elements also, the Buddha recommended to um, use the elements in contemplating the mind. So to let our meditation, let the mind be like the earth, as vast as the earth. Cultivating a mind that's as vast as the earth or as vast as space. Develop a mind that's vast like space, where experiences pleasant and unpleasant can arise and disappear without conflict and without harm. We might have been practicing noting, noting, thinking, seeing, hearing, planning, planning some more, (laughs) worrying, judging. And just that simple act of recognizing and naming experience brings a measure of perspective, doesn't it? It's like a sliver of space between... uh, the experience in, and the witnessing mind. And that, that is, has been shown to deactivate uh, the stress pathways in the nervous system. And then the way that we frame those notes or are looking at or viewing experience can also um, have an impact. So suggested sometimes using using a notes in the kind of passive voice so rather than hearing hearing but sounds being heard sights being seen thoughts being known taking taking the me out of the picture which helps with this perspective of non-identification and recognizing that the experience is a process and ultimately impersonal We can use mantras in the Joseph sense. So one that I've used a lot from Ajahn Sumedho and it's crept into different things we've said is just the recognition, it's like this. This moment, this experience is like this. It's okay. Already aware. good enough just this step nothing to want and then my favorite one is it really doesn't matter to what 
you do not cling. I can reflect on that endlessly. (laughs) So these are all wise uses of speech. Devon was also talking about wise speech in her talk this weekend. And so another thing that is supportive of our equanimity is the wise use of speech in refraining from exaggerating or catastrophizing internally, externally, recognizing that thoughts are just thoughts and they're all contingent on circumstances, on moods, on habits, on the information available, on our ways of seeing or framing things. So all our thoughts about our practice and our retreat and ourselves and other people. Can we use these in a way that supports balance and equanimity and clarity? And then in the afternoons, once a week, we've been doing metta practice. And I just uh, recognize for myself how much um, the practice of kindness and care soothe the heart and soothe the nervous system. And uh, when the mind is in that condition, then equanimity is much more accessible to us. So when we practice meditation also, we're growing equanimity. So this is what Ajahn Suchito has to say on how the practice of samatha uh, meditation supports equanimity and steadies the energy of the mind. He says, settling the mind with one theme, which could be the breath, or it could be just the knowing of this moment, so the open awareness that many of us have been practicing, letting go of external stimuli, when the mind puts aside external sense contact and the agitation and the fascination that accompany it, the mind's energy settles and unifies with the energy of the body. Such a mind can then enjoy its own vitality and extend its awareness more widely without losing the centre. This is samadhi, and as it deepens, the mind's composure and ease refines and steadies, leaving clarity and equanimity. We can rest in the stillness of the mind rather than in all the comings and goings, and then one's mind remains equanimous. It isn't pulled out or pushed in or shaken about by events. And accordingly, the mind settles on this elemental ground in the midst of the world, And it feels whole, healthy, and well. Greg described this process this morning um, with his hand, like the gathering of the mind in concentration is like the closing of the gaps between our fingers. Between the fingers. So equanimity is the signature quality of the unified mind. I was saying how in the the fourth jhana, um, vitaka, vichara, these are the jhana factors that Sally talked about, uh, 
uh, applied and sustained thought, the piti and the sukha subside, and then all that's left is mindfulness and equanimity. The simile in the suttas is that it's like being covered from head to toe with a cool, clean white cloth. You can think in the heat and the dust of ancient India. That image must have conjured up. So samatha is the first way that equanimity is developed in meditation. And however we might assess our level of attainment in concentration, so I have not spent time abiding in the fourth jhana on this retreat. I know some of you wondered what teachers do in their free time, and you may imagine that we're all just retired to our room and sitting in fourth jhana. I haven't been doing this, I can assure you. Uh, But whatever is our evaluation of our concentration attainments, um, we've all experienced uh, at times a degree of equanimity developed through this practice of simply being with the breath or being with moment-to-moment awareness. So but whether there's just a little bit of equanimity or the pure equanimity of a of a deep state of concentration, the equanimity that comes from this concentration on its own is not stable. Because for equanimity to be really perfected and stable, um, we need wisdom. And so the second kind of way of developing equanimity through meditation is where this stability really comes from. The knowledge that comes about from hearing the Dharma and applying it to our experience. So the more we have the capacity to receive and reflect on our experience, then the more we see that experience as a causal process, endlessly arising and dissolving, changing and not belonging to anyone. This is vipassana as opposed to vipalasa. Vipalasa is, if you remember, these distortions of perception that solidify what's changing and make personal the impersonal and that see happiness as being inherent in in imaginary circumstances instead of where it's really to be found, which is in the peace of letting go or of saying yes to the changing now instead of waiting for some future thing to fulfill us. So the remedy for these distortions of perception, these vipalasas, is the clear seeing of steady mindfulness and also um, wise reflection. And I just want to mention two um, particular um, frameworks for wise reflection. And the first is, the, or one is the five recollections that uh, I started speaking about last week. And the other is the teaching of the eight worldly winds. So one of the things that the vipalasas do, these distortions of perception, is they create the setup for the worldly winds to blow. These eight winds of joy and sorrow, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. And these winds will probably blow quite strongly for us now in these times of change because there's so much there to trigger our liking and our disliking. So there may be some attachment and longing for the folks who are leaving, 
you know, from the from the people who are staying, maybe some desire and aversion will re- arise in respect of the incoming yogis and the new teachers, and things that we want to change and don't want to change about our being here, things that we dread and things that we long for about going home. And then praise and blame of one another, of ourselves, of our practice, of the teachers, of IMS, of those deluded people at home who haven't been practicing and those deluded people who are messing up the world out there, who I'm afraid are still messing up the world out there. So ignorance takes the the fleeting and the momentary and it grasps it and perceives it through the lenses of these worldly winds. And they're called worldly because they keep keep the world spinning. So those of you who, who, who suffer from an inner critic, a harsh inner critic, I've noticed that the inner critic or the judging mind always seems to see things in terms of the worldly winds. So it'll take one moment of pleasant or unpleasant experience and make that into a story about my practice and who I am and uh, all the consequences that follow from that. These are just the weather patterns of Mara. And we know what the strategy is for Mara, to say, I see you, Mara. So to recognize these worldly winds when they're blowing and we can we can evaluate our actions and our experiences in a skillful way without creating a personality around them so we have these happy moments these sad moments these wise moments and these deluded moments but we don't have to create out of them a judgment and a story of me so ajahn sajito says that equanimity is a deep humility that allows the mind to step out of adopting any identity, any view, any judgment. And then these five subjects for frequent recollection. I'm of the nature to age, to sicken and to die, and neither I nor anyone else is exempt from this. And all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. So when we reflect on common humanity, then acceptance and compassion have a chance to arise. And the fifth recollection in these five recollections, I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born from my karma, sustained by karma, and will inherit the fruits of my karma whether that karma is skillful or unskillful. So this, this traditional reflection on karma um, is condensed into that one word at the end of the Imaya Dhammanu chant for the chanters here, Kamasaka. All beings are the subject, are subject to the laws of karma. And I love it when we chant that, chant that word right through at the end, end of the chant, having... Uh, offered metta to all categories of beings without exception. There's also this recognition, kamasaka. They are the owners of their own karma. 
So when we do a Brahma Vihara meditation on equanimity, often what the reflection that we're given is something like all beings are the owners of their karma and their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. So this balances compassion with equanimity. More, another maybe sort of um, more colloquial way to put it might be, I love you and even though I want to, I can't keep you from suffering. So there's a, a, a love that preserves and honors the integrity of other people. Equanimity uh, stops metta or compassion from becoming um, sticky with attachment. So there's a question that often gets asked about if we become completely equanimous, will we become passive in the face of suffering and injustice? And there's what's called the near enemy of, uh, of equanimity, something that looks and feels like a kind of equanimity but isn't at all. And this is uh, the states of indifference or disconnectedness. This isn't equanimity. So equanimity is cool and not cold. It's not separable from the capacity to feel joy, the capacity to feel love, the capacity to feel compassion. It's, uh, all these Brahma-viharas are responsive qualities. Equanimity is a responsive quality. So an example of that is the Kuan Yin, who is the Bodhisattva of compassion, whose statue is at the back of this hall and the and the two ends of the walking room outside, who is said to be one who listens to the sounds of the world at ease. Her compassion springs from this uh, deep, deep insight into emptiness, which gives this basis of equanimity. And she lets, I love the statue at that, at the, the opposite end of the hall where she's sitting with her thing. I can't do it when I'm sitting here, but... Uh, in, in what's called the royal pose, where one, one foot is down and she's just ready to spring powerfully into action. Because balance, I think, brings power, empowerment, not inertia. I, I went rock climbing for the first time in about 16 years this summer, and uh, it was interesting to remember how you... You know, when you're when you're climbing up a rock face, the only way that you can make the next unknown tricky move is when you're actually balanced on whatever holds are available to you right there. You have to be balanced before you can move forward, and that actually gives you the power and the possibility to uh, make a challenging move. And this is what equanimity offers to us in terms of being able to respond to the conditions of the world. So we can orient ourselves to this quality of equanimity and I hope sense the way that this thread is woven through our practice. And equanimity is never ever in a hurry. We've said that this, this practice is a marathon not a sprint. 
And I'm very happy that uh, we had a chance to have a session in here with Joseph, who is to me such a, a an inspiring example of this. And somebody who began teaching these retreats and taught them for 40 plus years and in that time also has really dedicated himself to his own practice and just when one gets to talk to him and uh, and having had the experience of you know watching him work with with yogis so he's totally unfazed by people's reports of their experience on retreat or whether it's good or bad or going up or down because he's had it all and it doesn't just go in a smooth trajectory either you know he talks about having had horrible retreats and you know many many years into his practice and wonderful retreats and then the next one you never know how the next how the next retreat is going to be so I feel a tremendous uh, love and gratitude for him and what he's offered and I was reflecting on well, what's the common feature of what does Joseph share with the teachers who've really inspired me and uplifted me in this practice both ones that I've met personally and ones that I've just read about or listened to and I think that the people who inspire me are the ones who even after many many years of practice just love the Dharma with the same kind of freshness and humility and wonder that was there in the beginning. And if anything, with even more, uh, more wonder. Yeah, this, is a, this is a path that keeps opening out, a path of endless discovery. So we have no need to be in a hurry. We can be equanimous about how it's all gone and in our approach. So I know that it's been a, a busy day with lots of engagement for some of you and that just the activity of talking or change can make us tired. But I do want, there are two poems that I want to read to end. The first one is about on the theme of unhurriedness and was shared with me by a yogi, a member of our Sangha. So this is The Poet Dreams of the Mountain by Mary Oliver. Sometimes I grow weary of the days with all their fits and starts. I want to climb some old grey mountains slowly, taking the rest of my lifetime to do it, resting often, sleeping under the pines or above them on the unclothed rocks. I want to see how many stars are still in the sky that we have smothered for years now, a century at least. I want to look back at everything, forgiving it all, and peaceful, knowing the last thing there is to know. All that urgency, not what the earth is about. How silent the trees, their poetry of being of themselves only. I want to take slow steps and think appropriate thoughts. In 10,000 years, maybe, a piece of the mountain will fall.
And then I just, I'd like to read uh, the beginning and the end of one of my favorite Dharma texts, which is the verses on the faith mind by the third Chan patriarch. That's another translation, calls it the mind of absolute trust. And uh, I love the invitation into equanimity that's here. So you can just settle back and let the words stream through your, your mind. <laughs> the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglements of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. Be serene in the oneness of things, and such erroneous fears, views will disappear by themselves. For the unified mind in accord with the way, all self-centered straining ceases. Doubts and irresolutions vanish and life in true faith is possible. With a single stroke we are freed from bondage. Nothing clings to us and we hold to nothing. All is empty, clear, self-illuminating, with no exertion of the mind's power. Here thought, feeling, knowledge and imagination are of no value. In this world of suchness, there is neither self nor other than self. To come directly into harmony with this reality, just simply say when doubt arises, not to. In this not to, nothing is separate, nothing excluded. No matter when or where, enlightenment means entering this truth. And this truth is beyond extension or diminution in time or space. In it, a single thought is 10,000 years. Emptiness here, emptiness there. But the infinite universe stands always before your eyes. Infinitely large and infinitely small. No difference, for definitions have vanished and no boundaries are seen. So too with being and non-being. Don't waste time in doubts and arguments that have nothing to do with this. 
one thing, all things move and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality because the non-dual is one with the trusting mind. Words. The way is beyond language for in it there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.